Well, good morning, Foothill Bible Church. It is good to be here with you as we sing the Lord's praises, as we hear from promise. Man, it's like we were just driving down mountain, taking a right on, uh, oh, sorry, come down mountain, taking a left on 15th. Goodness, our geography and sense of direction here, is, <laughs> it's been a while. But it's like, wow, we just, it seems like just a couple months ago, and really has been just a couple months ago since we've been here. And we have been looking forward to this day, to seeing you face to face, to worshiping with you again, and to singing the Lord's praises together. Uh, the Lord has been so faithful to us up in Post Falls, Idaho. He has been blessing the work there. The Word of God is powerful. The Word of God does all the work. And in so many ways, we need to just get out of the way and let the Word of God do its work. And and God's people are growing. The church there is hungry and has been hungry for the word of God and is growing in its hunger and desire to obey and learn from the word of God. And I would appreciate your prayers as you, as you hold the rope for us as well that the gospel, that God's word would continue to bear fruit amongst God's people because the sheep up there eat the same as the sheep do down here. One word, one phrase, one verse at a time. And really, our prayer for the church up there and down here is this. We pray for revival. We pray for a spirit-wrought, spirit-empowered revival. And what is revival? It is when God's people rediscover the holiness of God. And we are changed as a result of coming into the presence of a holy God. And that is my desire this morning, is that we as God's people would come into the presence of the God who is holy, holy, holy. So if you will, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And in this chapter, we read of a man who came into the very throne room of God. God summoned him from earth, from Judah, into his presence to meet with him. And Isaiah was never the same man. We'll be in Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 8. And this is the word of the Lord. Isaiah writes this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come into your presence, into your holy presence. And we ask that as you did with Isaiah, many years ago, that you would draw us near to you, that you would allow us to see that which we cannot see in and of ourselves, that you would give us a glimpse of your great holiness and that we would be changed as a result. We pray all this in the name of your precious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The year here is 739 BC. And Isaiah recounts his vision of the Lord. We are told in John chapter 12, verse 41, that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. When you read John chapter 12, the immediate antecedent to him is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Isaiah describes his vision of God in Isaiah 6, he has seen the Lord Jesus Christ. We must see the glory and the holiness of our Savior in this passage. Did the mic go out? We must see the holiness of our Savior this morning. King Uzziah, in the year that he died, 
was the 52nd and final year of his reign. Uzziah largely feared and obeyed the Lord, and the Lord had blessed his rule. These were golden years for Judah. Uzziah had defeated Judah's enemies and enlarged her borders. He was a man of military science, we are told in 2 Chronicles. He had commissioned scientists, as it were, to innovate and invent new weapons for war. We are also told that he loved the soil unique amongst Israel, or Judah's kings. Abundant harvests and rich food filled his kingdom. Judah knew peace and prosperity during Uzziah's reign, unseen since the days of Solomon. But at the end of his life, Uzziah forgot the holiness of God. He became proud and lifted up in his heart, and he entered into the temple and offered incense there. He was not permitted to do so for only the Levites could come into the temple and function as priests. So God, who is holy, struck Uzziah with leprosy until the day of his death, and he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And King Uzziah's reign is coming to a close, and Jotham, his son, will be king in his place. And here's the point. A beloved and strong king, though flawed, still beloved, is about to die. And it is then that Isaiah sees a vision of the true king, the king who is in heaven. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And you can hear Isaiah's awe, his wonder, his terror. I saw the Lord. And I saw him sitting upon a throne. He is the Lord. He is Adonai. He is king and master of heaven and earth. And he is sitting on his throne, beloved. The kings of this earth, the rulers of this earth come and go, but there is one king who always sits on his throne, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns. For all eternity, he reigns. We must never forget that God rules in heaven. 52 years is a long time. And these were golden years. I would imagine that in Judah there was fear at what was coming next. Who is Jotham? What kind of reign would he have? Would he fear the Lord? But God is on his throne. Isaiah has been summoned into heaven, into the presence of God. 
And he sees God on his throne. This throne is eternal. Psalm 93 verse 1 says, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Psalm 45 verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. His throne is eternal. And notice in verse 1, Isaiah's vantage point. He is beneath God. He is far beneath God. He saw the Lord sitting on his throne, where? High and lifted up. Isaiah is looking into the heavens. And God is above him. Isaiah is beneath him. This is the appropriate posture we must have before the Lord. For far too many of us, God is domesticated. We try to lower him to our level, to make him like us when he is totally unlike us. We need a high view of God a God who is transcendent in his glory. A God who is immovable in his righteousness and justice. A God whose sovereignty knows no limits. A God whose love is free and everlasting. A God who is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. So I would ask you this morning, is God high and lifted up in your life? Is he exalted above you? He must be, for that is who he is. You see, we are all guilty of the sin of Babel. We want to go to the heavens, do we not? But God has a day coming in Isaiah 2, a day coming against all that is lifted up. He will humble the proud, and he will lift up the humble. Are you ready for that day? Isaiah then describes the beauty of the heavenly throne room in verse 1. He says, the train of God's robe filled the temple. Now, Isaiah here is using words. He's searching for language to describe the indescribable. You notice that he doesn't describe God himself, but the emanation of God's glory that comes from God. He describes what he calls the train of God's robe. Now, Eastern monarchs back in that day would display visibly their power and their glory with the train of their robe. The materials used, the length, the beauty of their robes were an indication of their glory and power. And Isaiah says that the train of God's robe filled the temple. The temple could not contain God's beauty. 
Isaiah could not hide from God's majesty. He must behold the glory of the Lord. And notice that the throne room of God is called the temple. God's throne room is a temple. And what happens in a temple? God is worshipped in his temple. And that is what Isaiah describes next in verse 2. He describes the worship of God by the seraphim. Above him stood the seraphim. The seraphim are literally the, the burning ones, the ones who burn with God's holiness. And they are above him. I think the idea here is that they are waiting upon him. Each of the seraphim had six wings. With two, he covered his face. You see, these seraphim are sinless. But sinless beings, though they may be, they dare not look at the undiminished holiness of God with their eyes. They cover their eyes in the presence of the Lord. With two wings, they covered their feet. They dare not let the lowest part of their body be exposed before the Lord. They must be there in God's presence with an attitude of reverence. They cover their feet with reverence. And with two wings, the seraphim fly. The seraphim fly before the throne of God, waiting for God to give word, to give them commandments so that they might execute his will immediately. Now I was thinking about this, this attitude amongst this angelic host. They dare not look at God's presence. They approach him covering their feet. They fly in his presence, eager to do his will. Should not that be our attitude before the Lord? But Isaiah is not primarily concerned with the wings of the seraphim. He is concerned with the words of the seraphim in verse 3. And one called to another and said, the idea here is that they are declaring to one another of the glories of God. And this is what they say. Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the next seraph says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is what the angels in heaven are crying out at this very moment. When we come together as God's people to worship him, we are joining into their song. We sing with the angels. 
when the people of God pass from this life to the next. This is what they behold, this is what they hear, and this is what they sing. We must not be silent. The seraphim cannot be silent in the presence of God. When we encounter who God is, we must declare his majesty. And you notice that the seraphim do not just say that God is holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy. And there is no other attribute of God in scripture that is repeated like this three times. It nowhere says that God is love, 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 or righteousness, 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 right? But that he is holy, holy, holy. The seraphim are declaring this with hearts full of joy. They are not afraid of God's judgment for they are sinless. They are exuberant in their joy. They are exultant. They are joyful in the presence of God. And they say that the whole earth is full of his glory. Listen, we cannot grasp the glory of God until we come to grips with the holiness of God. And Isaiah here hears that the seraphim are saying that the whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah has seen God's beauty filling the temple that is in heaven, but God's glory cannot be contained in heaven. God's glory floods all the earth. It is everywhere. When Isaiah leaves the throne room of God in heaven and returns to earth, even on earth, Isaiah cannot hide from the glory of God. God's glory floods the floor of the deepest oceans and fills the heights of the tallest mountains. God's glory is on display in both Antarctica and the Sahara Desert. God's glory is seen no matter a nation's political climate, communist countries, socialist countries, capitalist countries, monarchies, democracies, unreached tribes, no matter what they do or how hard they try to stamp out the knowledge of the glory of God, they are unable to. The heavens declare God's glory and this earth is full to overflowing with the glory of God the Lord. And we see most clearly the glory of God in the gospel. When God sent his son to this earth to live as one of us and for us, to die in our place, taking the wrath of God for us as a demonstration of the mercy and the love of God. We see God's conquest over evil and the death and resurrection of Christ. And sinful men and women, boys and girls, can be made right with God on the basis of the finished work 
of Jesus Christ. We see God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who is the Word of God. But so often, we're blinded from seeing God's glory in creation and God's glory in the face of Christ, are we not? And we need God to open our eyes to see as he sees. The seraphim sing and heaven trembles. Verse four. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah here tells us where he is. He is at the doorway of the temple. And even there, when the seraphim sing, the foundations of the threshold shake beneath him. Now think about this. The heavenly temple was made with materials, not from this earth, but from heaven. And still, the heavenly temple shakes. They shake because the angels are declaring the holiness of the one true God. And the angels are singing. The house is filled with smoke. Three times now Isaiah uses this word filled. In verse one, the train of God's robe filled the temple. The whole earth is full of God's glory. And then now in verse four, the house was filled with smoke. And I think the idea here is that God's glory is shrouded with mystery. And perhaps God sends forth this smoke to shield Isaiah's eyes from gazing too long at God's presence. There's a very good book that I would recommend to you called Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord, written by Michael Reeves. And in that book, Michael Reeves points out in the Bible two different kinds of fear. There is the fear of God that is brought about as a result of our sinfulness. When sinners come face to face with a holy God, they recognize that God is holy and they are not. They are afraid of the judgment that is rightly due them. The second kind of fear, though, that we see in the Bible is the fear of reverence and love. We see both kinds of fear in Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. And Moses recounts this. He says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him 
may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now what is Moses saying to the people of Israel here? On the one hand, he says, do not fear. And then he says, God has come near to you so that his fear may be in you. Moses is distinguishing between two different kinds of fear. There is the fear of judgment. Now that fear is a good fear. That is where we begin. When sinners come to recognize that they are guilty before a holy God and they need a savior, they repent of their sins. They're made right with God. But we don't stop fearing God. We no longer fear his judgment, yes, but we must still fear him. We must fear him because he is majestic in holiness, awesome in power. We fear him because he has forgiven us of great sin. Psalm 130, verse 4, the psalmist says this, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The fear of God is good. It is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God that the people of God who have been saved experience is filled with joy. David says in Psalm 2, verse 11, serve the Lord with Fear and rejoice with trembling. So you see here that joy and fear are not antithetical. No, they combine in the hearts of God's people. We are in need of this kind of fear. This kind of fear is so often lacking today because we misunderstand the holiness of God. So there's two different kinds of fear, the fear of judgment and a joyful fear that fills the hearts of God's people because of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. But Isaiah now describes the first kind of fear, the fear of judgment in verse five. Isaiah now speaks and he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What happens to us when we come into the presence of God? We are undone. We are exposed. The light of God's holiness shows us who we really are before him. And who are we before God? Sinners. Guilty sinners. And Isaiah confesses his sin, specifically the sin of foul and impure speech. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. Now, why does Isaiah specifically point to his lips? 
Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 45, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Do you want to know what's really going on inside your heart? Look at your words. Your words are a window into the state of your soul. And Isaiah confesses, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. And he not only acknowledges his sin, but the sin of God's people, Judah. He says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is what Isaiah is saying. He says, God, if this is who you are, then I am in trouble. And my people are in trouble. We are in trouble. Not because of Babylon, not because of Assyria, but because of you. The God who is holy, holy, holy. And I would ask you this morning, when you come into the presence of a holy God, what would be your confession? Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man or a woman of what? I am a man who is proud, who is haughty in spirit, not low and humble and contrite before God. Isaiah confesses his sin. And how does God respond? God responds to Isaiah's confession with love and mercy. In verse seven, in verse six, excuse me. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned God dispatches one of the seraphim to take one of the coals from the burning altar that is before him. And the seraph takes one of the coals with tongs to Isaiah. And he takes this coal that is unfathomably hot. And he touches Isaiah's lips. Now the mouth is one of the most sensitive parts of the human body. When I underestimate the temperature of soup or my cup of coffee, coffee, and I drink it and I am scalded by it, I whimper like a baby, right? <laughs> Isaiah here doesn't describe the pain that he must have felt when this coal touched his lips. But it must have been excruciating. This burning coal should have killed Isaiah 
instantly consumed him. But the holiness of God not only consumes God's adversaries, it purifies the broken and repentant. It does not consume them, but it renews them. When Moses met the holy God at the burning bush, the bush was not burned up, though it should have been. When we encounter a holy God, we should be consumed on the spot. But for those who are broken before God, God's holiness does not consume us, it renews us and makes us right with God. The seraph says this, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, removed from you and your sin atoned for. Isaiah could not do this to himself. And isn't that the message of the gospel? God, you are holy, I am not. I am about to be consumed by you. And I need you to remove my guilt. I need you to atone for my sins in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're powerless to deal with the problem of sin. God and God alone can deal with the sin that plagues our hearts. So I would ask you this morning, if you have not yet committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, have you realized that you are in trouble because you are a sinner and God is holy? But here is the promise of God to you that if you confess your sins, acknowledge your guilt before a holy God, that God will cleanse you of your sins and make you right with him. And he does so with the blood of Jesus Christ. But you must cry out to him to save you. You must cry out. Now why did God summon Isaiah into his throne room? First, to redeem Isaiah, to purify Isaiah of his sin, to save him. But then God calls out to Isaiah in verse eight. God now speaks, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? You notice it is only after Isaiah has seen God and feared him, only after Isaiah has confessed his sin and only after God has cleansed Isaiah of his sin does God now speak to Isaiah to commission him? Whom shall I send? Who will go forth for, for us? 
And Isaiah responds for the very first time in his life with a clear conscience. Here I am. Send me. You see, God's servants must fear God before they are used by him. The holy fear of God must fill our hearts. And it is out of the overflow of a heart that is filled with a joyful fear of God that God uses us. If you desire to be used by God, I would ask you, do you fear Him? Do you worship Him? Do you reverence Him? Do you bow before the one who is high and lifted up? We must fear Him. For he and he alone is holy, holy, holy. What is revival? Revival is when the people of God encounter the God who is holy, Holy, holy. Let's pray. Our God, we come into your presence. Asking that you would open our eyes to see you. Give us understanding so that we might know you. That we might know you for who you really are. And not who we have fashioned you to be. Oh Lord, move in our midst. Move in our hearts. Give us love for you. A love that befits your holiness. And Lord, we want to be used by you. So draw us near to you. We pray all this for your glory revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen.